Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. As a traveler, it's a fact you're going to need to manage your spending in different currencies. You need a service that not only helps you send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast, but also does it without the hidden fees or exchange rate markups. This is where WISE comes in. WISE is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. I've been a customer for over a decade. It's been a lifesaver for me as a traveler, a nomad, and now a permanent resident abroad. If you're a traveler who's still using your regular bank, you need to check this out. Join 16 million customers and learn how the WISE account could work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com slash travel. That's wise.com slash travel. Thank you to WISE for supporting today's show. This episode of Zero to Travels brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. For me, I don't know, it was kind of this surrender to the zigzag flow of having a general direction but not knowing exactly where it was going to lead me. Today, I have a wonderful conversation to share with you. I got to chat with Devi Lockwood, who spent five years traveling in 20 countries on six continents to document 1,001 stories on water and climate change. How did this whole project start? How did she get it funded? Why did she do it? You'll hear all that and much more. And what I find fascinating is how she's been able to bring climate change and water issues around the globe to life through these stories. And we talk about that in this interview because a lot of times we we read newspaper articles, we get the statistics and the numbers, but they don't really have the human element. And that was a big initiative for Devi was to get those human stories to find out how this is really impacting the world. And of course, she has plenty of travel adventures to share along the way. She talks about how she started with bike touring. Is that something you can do? Is that something anybody can do? She'll share her advice around that. She shares her best advice for how we as individuals can make a difference when it comes to climate change. She talks about how she parlayed this project into a career in journalism, why she considers solo travel to be the most social form of traveling, and just a ton more. Debbie's awesome. She's written about science, climate change, and technology for the New York Times, The Guardian, Slate, and The Washington Post, among many others. A lot of takeaways in this chat. I know you're going to love it. Plus, I want to give a shout out to somebody in this community, a listener from Germany, who is making the plunge into travel. All that and more happening today, right now. So buckle up, strap in, thanks for being here, and welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. You're listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel-based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. And now your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey, what's up? It's Jason with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show. Thanks for hanging out, letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. I am so pumped to bring you today's show. This is a conversation I recorded at the end of last year, and 
As soon as I read about Debbie, when I first came across her and her project and her book, I knew I had to get her on the show. I reached out immediately because I knew there would be a lot of value for you in this conversation, not just the travel aspect of it, although that's an entire part of it in and of itself, the the adventure, the journey, the experiences going through the different countries. And then you blend in this element of, you could call it activism in some way, or just generating awareness around such an important topic. And I just want to read a little snippet from simonandschuster.com in the book description. They say that, uh, quote, she finds that ordinary people sharing their stories does far more to advance understanding and empathy than even the most alarming statistics and studies. This book is a hopeful global listening tour for climate change, channeling the urgency of those who have already glimpsed the future to help us avoid the worst, end quote. And I like that they use the word hopeful here because this isn't an episode that's meant to bring you down. It's meant to bring awareness, to get you thinking, and to also talk about travel, which is something we love. And I'm always fascinated when people are able to combine multiple passions into a trip and create dynamic conversations that otherwise would have never occurred on the ground. You know, if Debbie was just passing through town on a bike, she of course would have had many conversations, but not the same types of conversations that she did have because she was creating a space for those conversations with the sign around her neck and the entire project and that is something that we dig into here. Why did she go out of her house that first day and put a sign around her neck? And how did it turn into this whole five-year, multi-continent, multi-country adventure? You're going to find all of that out and more right now. And don't forget to stick around on the back end. I did want to give a shout out to a listener in Germany who is making a big move when it comes to travel and just want to give them some love. Stick around for that. And of course, I'll leave you with a quote, one that I just read for the first time the other day, and I loved it so much, I immediately texted it to my wife, who was downstairs in the same house. Do you do that? I'm not the only one that does that, right? Do you ever text somebody that's just you know, feet away or one floor away in the house? Talk about lazy. Couldn't I have just told her the quote later? Anyway, I'll share it with you. Uh, at the end of this show. Now let's slip and slide into this interview with Debbie, and I will see you on the other side, my friend. My guest today spent five years traveling in 20 countries on six continents to document 1,001 stories on water and climate change. She put her experiences on this trip into an incredible new book called 1001 Voices on Climate Change. I'm thrilled to have her here to share some of her stories from people around the world who have been impacted by climate change, some advice on how we as travelers can make a difference to hear her experience traveling around the world and documenting these stories and much more. You can learn more about her at devi-lockwood.com. I'll leave that link in the show notes as well. Devi, welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. Thank you so much for having me. Total honor to be here and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, I mean, you've done something really powerful here and inspiring to me. And that's why as soon as I saw your story, I just, I opened up the email right away and I'm just like, I'm going to send Debbie an email. Let's see what we can 
what we can do get her on the show because I want to start with the dedication in the book, actually, because the dedication is for all storytellers. Can you share why you settled on that as the dedication? Yeah, it's funny. I was going back and forth on the wording up until I think the last draft, whether it was to all the four storytellers or for all the storytellers, because little prepositions like that matter. What I really wanted to do was just express gratitude to all the people around the world who took the time to share their stories with me in a, a really beautiful way. And I would not have been able to do this project without their generosity and hospitality and eagerness to share. And I wanted to honor that kind of right up front and center because this project is nothing without them. Why did you do this? You could have just done the normal gap year thing or saved up some money and went traveling and stayed at all the nice, you know, resorts throughout Southeast Asia and done the banana pancake trail or, I mean, something, you know, you could have lived in a van and you could have done any number of different travel related things. I imagine it wasn't, it wasn't just like, oh, I'm going to travel because of this. It seems like travel was part of your passion or is part of your passion as well. It sounds like to me, at least the sense I get is that you combined sort of these two things, but why... Why do this? Why put yourself out into the world this way? Yeah. I mean, gosh, there's so many different origin stories to the bigger journey, but I'll pull on a couple of threads just to paint a bigger picture for everybody. Um, first is that I was living in the Boston area during the marathon bombings um, as an undergraduate student then. And we were on lockdown for a couple of days, which looking back on it sounds like nothing, but at the time it felt like the longest lockdown in the world, right? And um, once it was finally possible to go outside again, I found that all I wanted to do was just talk to people, to strangers, and to move through the city in a way that I hadn't before, but also to remind myself that not everyone is murderous, right? And so I had this kind of quirky idea to uh, take a piece of cardboard. It was it was the inside of a broccoli box because I was living in a cooperative house and we ordered our vegetables in bulk. Um, and I wrote on that piece of cardboard, open call for stories, and then put a piece of ribbon around it so that I'd have my hands free and hung that around my neck and just walked around the city for a day. And um, all sorts of people approached me. And, and it felt like I was in a completely different place almost. <laughs> um, and I, I had these beautiful conversations with everyone from a man for, who worked for public transportation telling me about the last cup of coffee he had with his mother to a woman who was wearing a sandwich board advertising parking downtown um, who had just come to Boston from Haiti and talked about the displacement she felt after the earthquake that prompted her to move there, but from her family members who were back home. And I went back home and I thought about these stories and realized that I, I kind of didn't want to stop doing that, right? And, and that summer, I did a bike trip about 800 miles down the Mississippi River. So I started in Memphis, Tennessee, and I ended in Venice, Louisiana. And I brought that cardboard sign with me and my audio recorder. And when people were comfortable with it, I just listened to whatever kind of stories Um people wanted to share who I met on that journey. And the farther down the river I was riding my bicycle, the more stories I was hearing about 
both water and climate change in terms of intensified storms and saltwater encroachment on the land and people making the decision to leave a place that they had called home for generations in the aftermath of a big storm. And it made me ask big questions about what home even is. And when climate change threatens that, you know, can that place, (laughs) sense of place and community and belonging be moved somewhere else when, when migration is necessary? And I wanted, I realized (laughs) those stories I just couldn't stop thinking about. Right. And I realized I wanted to put those stories of water and climate change from the lower Mississippi river Delta in dialogue with stories about water and climate change from other parts of the world. So I kind of designed this project for myself where I would be continuing to travel mostly on my bicycle, but sometimes not recording these stories from people I met. And, um, and then I just applied for a bunch of grants um, and I got a bunch of no's and then one yes. And that was all I needed to get started and um, kind of started ping ponging around <laughs> from there. But the, the grant that I got was for a year of purposeful wandering after graduation. It's it's a specific one for Harvard students. Unfortunately, I wish it was open for more people. But um, it, it was um, a really incredible opportunity to kind of take that directed idea that I had and then to just keep on doing it. And then what happened was I made that stretch from one year to about five. (laughs) That particular grant, you made it stretch to five years or you just kept kept the project going, figuring out ways to do it? Both. I mean, traveling by bicycle is very, very cheap. (laughs) Um, It's kind of like you just got to get somewhere. And um, I had a tent with me. People took me in all over the world, which is incredible. There's this website called Warm Showers, which is kind of like couch surfing, but for people who ride their bikes. And so I use that in some places. Um, And I also started freelance writing and um, took up like an odd social media manager job that I could do on the road. And um, but yeah, that that initial grant got me started. And then I just um, found a way to keep on going because I one thing I really encountered within myself, especially once I got back on the bike, was just this deep, deep desire to slow down. And at first, I didn't know what to do with that because I felt kind of scared because here I was, <laughs> you know, in my early 20s with my plan with a capital P. <laughs> and <laughs> I was like, this is going to be one year and then it will be over and I will move on and start my real life. Right. And of course, that plan it just started to not be really what I wanted. And so I had to encounter the fact that the journey was changing and I was changing too. And um, interestingly, it was a group of uh, climate activists who I met in Wellington, New Zealand, who challenged me to consider the carbon footprint of all the flying that I had done to date. And I did. I went on one of those calculators online where you can calculate the environmental footprint of all sorts of different actions. And sure enough, flying disproportionately outweighed anything else that I could do, whether it was traveling by bicycle or diet-related changes, what have you. And so I was like, all right, well, why don't I give myself a creative challenge of not flying for as long as I could, Um, which led to some really beautiful and chaotic directions. I was on a crowdfunded the money to take a cargo ship across the Tasman Sea and hitched a ride on two sailboats. And um, in between those two things, cycled up the East Coast of Australia for about six months. And um, for me, I don't know, it was kind of this surrender to the zigzag flow of having a general direction, but not knowing exactly where it was going to lead me. Um, But I found that that was a really great way of both moving through the world 
and of gathering material for, I didn't know it at the time, for, but, but for what ended up becoming this book. That's amazing. There, there's uh, a lot to unpack here. <laughs> I have yeah. a lot of questions, <laughs> but I think the zigzag surrender to the zigzag flow is also sounds to me like kind of what you did in life as well, right? It's like a big myth that a lot of travelers have is I'm going to take this year off or I'm going to do this thing for a year. And then after that, I'll go to my regular life, air quotes there, as if that can't be your regular life. And it seems like you turned it into your regular life. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting too, is that it led me to a career in journalism, which I wasn't even considering. Um, but I, I realized, I mean, I, I studied folklore and mythology as an undergrad. My senior thesis was a, a group of poems inspired by those stories that people told me when I was biking down the Mississippi River. But I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I knew what I loved, but I didn't know how that would turn into a like career. And um, what happened was I was posting a ton, like I started a blog. I would totally recommend that for any <laughs> folks who like writing, who are listening, um, it, it was a way of giving myself these kind of artificial deadlines, but also of paying close attention to the world around me and just getting it out there to a little tiny audience. Um, and then shared that WordPress page on on social media and kind of cultivated this little tiny following of people who were interested in, in what I was doing. And um, then I uh, connected with some writers who were way further ahead in their career than me who gave me some really incredible mentorship and encouraged me to pitch those stories to editors. Um, and then, yeah, it just kind of all unraveled from there where I fell sideways into a career in journalism, which I realized I could continue to ask people questions <laughs> and focus on storytelling in a similar way, but um, in a like kind of, yeah, more of a job <laughs> context. So that, that's been really fun too. Yeah, you're just like, I love to do these things. Where do those things fit into a job description? Journalism. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, exactly. I, I remember I had a mentor um, through a woman's center, the woman's center in college, this woman named uh, Roxy. And she pulled me aside the first day and she's like, you know, think about your ideal day, like the best day ever. What do you do in that day? Like describe it in detail to yourself from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep. And then find a job that'll let you do as much as possible of that ideal day. <laughs> um, and uh, that's been a good, yeah, good career advice that I've held close to me as well. Because it's it's fun, fun to think about it in that way. Absolutely. I love that it started so simply in many ways, right? A cardboard sign ripped from a, a vegetable box. <laughs> one sign, right? Then, then it was one yes. Then you got one bike and one recorder. I mean, if you think about all of the small steps that led to this bigger thing. It's pretty incredible. I want to go back to the day where you first put the sign on and walked outside because it's not something everybody would do, <laughs> you know? Some people might come up with ideas like that, but then to actually put the sign on and go outside is another level of discomfort, I would say. Or maybe it wasn't. Are you used to putting yourself out there in that way? You are now, but were you at the time? Was that part of your personality or was that a challenge for you? Uh, I think it's definitely something I've learned over time, but especially in the aftermath of that big event, really that trauma for the whole city, it felt like what I needed and what I wanted more than anything else for myself, but also just for other people. Yeah, it became a lot less scary once I started doing it in part because people were so eager to share stories, right? I think that... It, sometimes 
can be hard to create that space, both for storytelling and story listening. Um, and that there was something so simple, like you said, about this sign that was was an invitation. And that gave people that ability to kind of really slow down and just have that moment to connect with someone. And like, if I'm honest with myself, I write a little bit about this early on in the book too, about um, my listening skills got much better over time. I listened back on some of those early recordings going down the Mississippi River and realized that I was kind of pushy and sometimes I spoke over people or I wasn't really listening, but I was thinking about how I was going to respond and the next question I was going to ask. And um, when I first listened back on those, I felt this kind of like, ooh, cringy discomfort. And from there on out, tried to really prioritize being fully present with someone and listening without the intention to respond and kind of making that space like almost holy, right? <laughs> and, and finding a way to um, connect with people across lines of difference, but just just to prioritize being fully present in that moment, because it, it was it was almost magic when it was right, right? And um, no matter what the topic was, if I could be fully present for someone else, um, you know, so many people said thank you. Um, and were able to open up about some things that they maybe hadn't shared that story before. And I think with issues that are as complicated as water and climate change and environmental degradation more generally, it's it's hard to know how to talk about these issues. With climate change especially, it's something that's discussed often in abstract and numerical terms. And it's really hard to empathize with a number or even to get a sense of what that number might communicate, right? I can tell you that the sea levels in Tuvalu um, since they started, uh, the Australian government started measuring them in the early 90s have been rising at about four millimeters per year. But it's hard to know exactly what that means and what that means for someone's everyday life. But if I tell you that I met a woman named Angelina, who is my age and has a couple of kids and in the last big drought, right, had an intense problem of water scarcity for her family and was making the choice between having enough water to drink and cook rice and having enough water to bathe her newborn child who would get a terrible rash if she washed that baby in the salt water of the lagoon that she and her husband and her older kids could wash and no problem, right? But that that really humanizes the issue and it makes it concrete in a way that I think that's just what the, the power of storytelling and listening can do at its best, right? It can... Um, like I said earlier, stories are sticky and they're hard to forget. And and when we can get enough sticky stories about these big and complex issues, it becomes easier to understand them. And, and when those stories are in dialogue with the science, um, and that was a big part of what I was trying to do here too, is complicate the idea of expertise Um because expertise can also be lived experience, right? It's not just a degree, but living through an event makes someone an authority on their lived experience of that event, right? Um, so when the lived experiences of climate change are in dialogue with the climate science, it makes it easier to understand not only where we are, but where we might go and how to create solutions that are inclusive and really address the folks who are the most impacted here and now, because the impacts of climate change aren't, you know, we've seen this <laughs> in our own country in the US, but also in other places too, where it's not, it's not some far off thing, right? It's, 
it's happening right now. And so it, the the urgency to listen to these stories is becoming ever more present. Yeah, I mean, it also makes people pay attention, right? Like you said, it humanizes it. I mean, I think the advice you shared on just holding a space, it, I will just quote from the book, you said, in a culture that values productivity over slowness, screen time over verbal storytelling sessions, holding a space for a story to be told face-to-face slowly feels revolutionary. I love that. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. Recently, I went out for tacos and it wasn't even Friday. Yes, we have Taco Friday in Norway, not Taco Tuesday. Well, more importantly, I could have earned rewards for every scrumptious bite of those chorizo soft shells. Introducing the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn four times points when you go out for dining or order takeout and restaurant delivery, including tacos. Plus, you can earn two times points when you shop for or order your groceries, two times points when you need to fill up or charge up at gas stations and EV charging stations. You're even rewarded with two times points just for your favorite streaming services. Go to usbank.com slash altitude. Go! To learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Win big with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash Altitude Go to apply. Limited time offer. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. This episode of Zero to Travel is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. We're excited to partner with Nissan because our listeners know we love to celebrate the joy of exploring the world and finding the best off-the-beaten-path destinations to visit. And there's no better vehicle for that than the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys, and it even has the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds, so you can bring the fun with you. But Nissan also knows that it's not just about where you go. In a Pathfinder, the real fun comes from getting there, and that's something we love celebrating here on the Zero to Travel podcast. We believe that life is about finding that joy within the journey itself, and that's why. We're thrilled to partner with Nissan to celebrate adventurers everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode of Zero to Travel and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Now, back to the show. It is odd to think that it feels revolutionary in some ways, right? Because this is the way humans have interacted for such a long time up until the digital age so it really should be the odd thing should be the other thing the zoom calls and the the skype calls and what we're doing here right but i think that holding space or creating one with that intention it's everything you've done right it's not just like the sign and i'm sure the energy you're giving off and and sort of the vulnerability of, of being on a bike at times and things like that can make you very approachable but then you're also creating this space for a conversation i i think just kind of going not too far off topic but just as general advice for travelers i think that's a wonderful way to connect with people anywhere on any level right to just go in with that intention of like creating a space and being present for for the story for the exchange, for the human connection. 
Yeah. And I found that having a prompt and, and a way of whittling down, you know, not just open call for any kind of stories, which was the original cardboard sign that I started with. But once I had that kind of trial run down the Mississippi, um, I realized that it would help to be a little bit more specific, in part because um, when I was wearing open call for stories, one person asked me if I was selling telephones. And I was like, no, 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 I just literally anything you want to tell me, I'd love to listen to it. I got another piece of cardboard. Fortunately, cardboard is available basically everywhere around the world. (laughs) And I wrote, uh, tell me a story about water on one side and tell me a story about climate change on the other. So that was a bit more direct, right? But that process of, uh, yeah, I found it really helpful to do a, a smaller trip to whittle it down to exactly what I wanted and then um, go out on the bigger, the bigger journey from there. But for, yeah, for anyone who's thinking about a trip and wondering how they might do it more intentionally, I don't know, uh, storytelling projects are super fun. Also feel free to steal the cardboard sign idea. It's, uh, (laughs) it's, it's very fun. I I will say. Um, and, And you mentioned vulnerability and it definitely feels vulnerable at times, but I think that there's, you know, always strength in that kind of vulnerability and putting yourself out there. When we think about the business world, you think about iterating products, right? But you don't necessarily think about that as much in terms of travel and a journey, right? But essentially you are iterating along the way. I mean, it, it took you time to kind of settle into the niche within your passion, I guess I would say. It sounds like from a meta view, it was like, hey, let's just, I, I need to connect. I want to hear stories. And then that turned into eventually stories on water and climate change, but it didn't start like that right away. I just want to pull that out only to highlight for anybody listening that you know, the big ideas like this beautiful book you've written and, and the concept and everything, it's, it's not like you just came right out of the gates with that. It took time to get there and you had to go out onto the journey into the world in the first place to kind of get there. So don't ever underestimate the power of the the first trip, even if you don't know exactly where things are headed. Mm. Yeah, that's really well said. And I didn't even know when I started that this was going to be a book. Like there were definitely some people early on who were like, oh, it sounds like you're writing a book. And I'm like, no. I am? <laughs> no way. Like what I originally wanted to create was an audio map where you can click on a point and listen to a story from that place. And that's cool. A beta version of that exists, but realized that I could lean more into the skill set that I have um, with writing and that that was a good direction to move move with it in terms of getting the stories out there. There's so many beautiful ways a journey can unfold, but the only way to figure it out is to try it out and then also to come at it with a learning mentality of, um, okay, what's working? Well, it's not working. How can I make this a little better? Right. I want to ask you some questions about just bike touring and travel sure. and, and book writing and all that stuff. But before we get into all that, I want to hear about some of the stories. We want to hear some of the stories from the road, like the one you just shared from, from the woman trying to decide, you know, how to use the water. I mean, I, I would just like to hear some of the ones that stuck with you the most. You mentioned stories being sticky, which were the ones that were the most sticky to you mm, and, yeah. and why? <laughs> There's so many. It kind of changes day to day. Well, do you have one that you haven't shared really on a podcast or anything before? Oh, that's a good question. One one thing that was maybe I haven't shared before is a story about a flood in Australia. Um, so I, as I mentioned earlier, spent about six months cycling up the East Coast from Melbourne to Townsville um, before I was 
hitching rides on sailboats. Um, and along the way in Queensland, I met a guy named Jack Viljoen, who's a musician who was working at the time with his wife, Corna, at uh, the Cluden Wildlife Rescue and Rehabilitation Center. And so they looked after injured and orphaned wildlife before releasing them back into the wild. And as you can imagine, in Australia, there's all sorts of fascinating creatures that um, I remember um, they had and were kind of nursing back to health. In the house, Jack told me a story about how he and Corno rescued 17 of their animals during a big flood that happened in 2013. Um, so there was a creek nearby them that rose about 10 meters and then came through the house and the sheds and the hills around all funneled the water into the valley. And so they had quails and sugar gliders and possums and wallabies and kangaroos and a few birds um, that they didn't want to fall prey to this flood. So they took food for the animals and very little food for themselves and went to higher ground that was just south of the rehabilitation center and ended up spending the night in their car with 18 animals, one of whom was a spotted python. <laughs> no way! There, yeah, <laughs> there wasn't any cell reception, right? They were trying to, like, keep the snake away from the other creatures. Um, and then the next day, emergency services arrived in the boat, and they approached and asked if Jack and Corny needed help. And at first they said no, because they had enough food, and they didn't feel they were in danger. And then the first responders continued upstream. They came back a couple hours later and they were like, okay, you, you guys should really come with us. Um, and they said, well, we've got all these animals with us. And the first responder said, no, the, the animals can't come. And they said, well, then we're not going anywhere. So eventually they agreed that they could take the animals with them. And this was after a lot of negotiations. And Jack said it was like talking to the United Nations about world peace or something <laughs> about which animals could and couldn't come with them. Um, so eventually they brokered that every all the animals would come except for the snake. Um, so they made a little safe spot for the snake and then got all their little animals. And he said it looked like Noah's Ark on this rescue boat. People on board grabbed a little pouch with a little baby in it. And um, all the animals made it except for the quails. Um, and about a month and a half later, they were able to return to their house and start cleaning up from the flood. And they lost so many things. You know, there were cars and tractors that were destroyed, but for them, it wasn't as important because those were just things uh, because raising the animals from babies, they'd grown fond of them. Yeah, he was really frank to say that if something, a flood like that happened again, that they would pack up and, and move somewhere else because dealing with one flood was somewhere else was just like too much. And I think that it was interesting, you know, Australia being a landscape of extremes, um, there's flood, there's fire. <laughs> I think people grow quite used to dealing with that. Um, but there's so many ways that, you know, these one in a hundred year floods are coming, coming more often and it's making people think more critically about where, where they feel good about the amount of risk that they feel okay with accepting um, in a day-to-day -day way. And I believe that Jack and Corna have moved um, further north to another place now. Must be so uh, powerful just to hear these stories firsthand in real time for the first yeah. time. Yeah, right? <laughs> it was a lot of fun. That one especially, it always makes me smile. I didn't mention this earlier, but Jack was really intent that I would see a platypus um, at sunset the night that I was there. So he took me out to the creek that was the one that, you know, swelled with water in the flood and told me, if you sit here on this dock very silently, you might see a platypus. And I did. It was just this little outline of the creature. Um, and that felt very special. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. 
given the stories you've heard, the research you've done, writing the book, the work you've done over the last many years, right now, what is your best advice for us making a difference as individuals in terms of climate change and water and the issues that you you cover? And, and as travelers, I guess, I would sure. say. Sure. Um, I mean... You know, it's easy for me to get up here and say, like, you know, individual responsibility is important. And here's the things that you one sole person can do. But in actuality, you know, individual efforts are important, but systemic change is really what we need. This is specifically systemic change that targets the fossil fuel industry. And so if this is an issue that any of our listeners are serious about combating, I would suggest connecting up with, um, you know, climate activism in your area. Um, and looking for groups that are targeting fossil fuels directly. Um, because any kind of way that you're able to move the needle, whether that's divesting from fossil fuel infrastructure or preventing it from being built in the first place, that's going to be far more impactful than anything that one person can do as an individual. So that kind of collective action is is really powerful. And there's a, the good news is there's a bunch of people doing great work on this already. The second thing I would say is that... Um, Specific to travel, um, it is really fun, I would say, to take the creative challenge of trying not to fly. <laughs> um, I only lasted about a year. And part of that is because I was in a part of the world that is surrounded by oceans when I made this decision. Um, so it's just even more challenging to get out of. But traveling low and traveling slow can be a very fulfilling way of getting around Um Traveling by bicycle, especially, I think one of my favorite parts of that is that it gets you to the places between places, right? Other forms of transportation will send you to a city or an urban hub of some kind, which is where a bunch of other people end up going because that's where all the transportation heads to. And that can be fulfilling in wonderful and interesting ways. Um, but I found, especially for the kind of storytelling work that I wanted to do, that it was great to be in the places between places and in more rural areas and collecting stories from people who um, might not otherwise be a part of this conversation about how we think about climate change globally. So bike travel is great. It's super fun. There's no windshield wipers between you and the world. You're just in it. <laughs> um, it's very social, especially doing it solo because so many people are curious about what you're doing and why you're doing it. If it's something that, you know, you have enough time, and that was the one thing about doing this trip when I did, was I had the gift of, of time and that I was able to make it elastic and extend to however long um, I wanted, which was just truly incredible. Yeah, to the extent that it's possible for for you, dear listener, to <laughs> um, experiment with uh traveling slowly and, and uh, minimizing flying. Because once you get somewhere, it's just the great part is continuing to be there, right? Or, or going somewhere else that's nearby. So I, I would say that's worth worth exploring. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, the gift of time is can be used anyway, right? If you have a year, you could have been, well, I want to go to 80 countries and, you know, and, and flown around and seen a million things. You use that year in a different way. Bike touring looks uh, like something that might intimidate people when they see it, I feel. You know, like, I don't know if I'm that adventurous to do something like that. Is it something anybody can do, in your opinion? And I, I mean, 
guess as part of that question, I want to know if the 800 mile thing was the like your first experience bike touring. You're just like, all right, I'm just into this thing. And now I'm on this 800 mile deal. Or did you like test things beforehand with a couple overnighters? Just give some advice on, on bike touring and thoughts. Yeah. So, okay. A bit more of the origin story for why bike touring for me is that I tore my ACL playing pickup soccer with some friends when I was in college. And the recovery from that was um, not fun. <laughs> I was kind of out of commission from my body for a little while. Um, and I, being a very goal-motivated person, wanted to um, think about something else while I was doing all of this. <laughs> um, just kind of constant rehab on my knee and learning how to bend and stretch it and strengthening the muscles and all that. All that fun physical therapy stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I found that dreaming about doing a bike trip because riding the bike was one of the first things I could do that got my heart rate up again. Um, I found that dreaming about a bike trip was a great way to keep my mind <laughs> on a goal and off of the mundane task at hand. And so that's how I dreamt it up. And um, I did a trial run beforehand with my mom. We uh, had the idea of biking from Boston to where my family was living at the time in Connecticut. And it was very hilly. <laughs> um, I was pretty inexperienced. You know, I'd ridden my bike as a way to get around, um, but not in a, a bike touring kind of way. But I bought panniers that were waterproof to put all my stuff in and a little handlebar bag. And, um, and we set off and we hit some yeah, big hills and big rain. And um, about the second or third day into this, it was a, uh, it was thundering, and we were sitting in a Dunkin' Donuts trying to stay warm and dry. I turned to my mom and I'm like, "Are you thinking what I'm thinking?" And he's like, "She's like, you want to bail?" <laughs> and so we called my dad. We were only like 50 miles from home at that point. We called my dad, and he came and picked us up. And it was kind of funny, like delightful little failure there. The Mississippi River Trail, the part of it I was on is very flat, I will say. So, um, and the weather was great. So I didn't, I didn't have those problems. It was just hot. I didn't drink a lot of water. Um, but it was helpful to kind of test out the gear and also, yeah, just goof around with my mom. We still laugh about that trip. Sometimes she took a video of like us cycling up a hill and me, I'm ahead of her. And there's this like bolt of lightning <laughs> ahead of me and it looks very dramatic. Um, but yeah, I, I found that to be really helpful. And, and I don't know, the great thing about bike touring, especially is there's so many different ways to do it. Um, I started out with one of those little bicycle computers that tells you how many miles you go um, at any stretch. And I was getting really competitive with myself and feeling like a failure if I didn't cycle a certain number of miles per day. And eventually, I just like took the thing off the handlebars. I'm like, I can't, I can't deal with this anymore. I don't want to be able to <laughs> quantify <laughs> um, miles per day because that's not what matters right now. What I was after was really connecting with people and recording stories. And that was the number I cared about. So, so kind of giving myself permission to ride my own ride. And I don't know, it met so many other cyclists, but there's uh, a really incredible community online of solo female touring cyclists. Specifically, there's a, a woman named Loretta Henderson who's made this website called the Woman on Wheels Wall. Um, so for anyone who's maybe a, a solo female traveler thinking about trying out a bicycle, you can just see, um, you know, there's it's pictures and a little couple paragraphs about 
each woman and their journey and why they did it. And I found that to be super inspirational and just, you know, there's, there's just so many different ways of <laughs> designing a trip and being intentional about it. But the fun part about being on a bike is you're getting to where you want to go by the power of your own body. And there's a certain kind of freedom that comes with being untethered to other people's schedules in that way that I really loved. And I found really conducive to the kind of connections that I wanted to forge when I was on the road. What is your relationship with solo travel now after all these experiences? Um, I think that solo travel is the most social way of traveling, um, which might sound counterintuitive, but there were tiny sections of the trip when I would meet someone who joined me for a little while, or I don't know, I chased two guys on a tandem bike and ended up cycling with them for a week because it was funny. (laughs) But I met far more people when I was on my own than I did when I was traveling with someone else. And similarly, traveling with other people, while it can be great, it becomes so much more about my relationship with that person and about um, negotiating communication with them and, you know, figuring out the small things of like, when each of us are hungry and recognizing that people are more likely to be grumpy when they're hungry. And (laughs) there's just that constant, you know, communication with one other person, and it, it turns way inward. Versus when I'm traveling solo, I feel like I'm this seeing glass eyeball, right? I take care of my own needs, but that's easy to do because I know them and I don't have to communicate them with another person. It's just communicating with myself, um, which, you know, solo travel is a great way to get to know yourself better. Um, I was constantly introducing myself to other people. And so that became this interesting process of revision where I was telling the story of my own life or in a truncated, of course, (laughs) travel friendly way to other people, but um, realized what I wanted to keep sharing and what maybe I could leave behind and what felt most important to me to share. So it became um, kind of a a journey within in that way. Um, But also just, yeah, having the opportunity to meet people from around the world was so, so constantly social (laughs) and, and something that I hope to do more of moving forward. Although um, I also, you know, love spending time with, with other people. And if there comes a space in time when, you know, I, I even just recently here in Vermont, a uh, couple months ago, went for a, an overnight bike trip with my dad in the Northeast Kingdom. And that was great because it was about strengthening and deepening our relationship and, and being in a new place and experiencing new things together. So that that can be wonderful as well. But it was less about the place and more about that um, connection with the person I was traveling with. Yeah. Where do you put yourself on the introvert extrovert spectrum? Oh, um, I'm a funky mixture of both. Um, I would say probably more extroverted than introverted, although it's changed over time and the pandemic has thrown that for a little interesting curveball. Um, but I really need, like for me, one fuels me up for the other. So while I love spending time with people, after I spend time with people, I love spending time with myself. And then after I spend time with myself, I love spending time with people. And, um, the fun part about designing the bike trip in the way that I did was that I was being intensely social with new people and then had all this time to myself on the ride to kind of process those stories and let them move through my body and think about them and stop and write if I wanted to or keep going. Um, But I found that that point and counterpoint between um, listening to other people and listening to myself and being with other people intensely and being with myself on the bicycle, um, that that was really... Uh, it worked well for me as a balance. Hmm. I want to hear about some of the destinations. 
sounds like you've done some pretty sweet traveling. I have no idea what it's like to bike on the coast of Australia. That sounds awesome. I mean, if you want to highlight, I'm not even sure where to start here, but maybe you can you can share some of your sort of favorite cycling routes that you've taken maybe or, you know, specific places. I'll just kind of leave it a bit open there. Yeah. Um, well, specific, I'll, I'll do a couple on the bike and then a couple off the bike. Um, specific to the bike, I loved um, in New Zealand going up and over Arthur's Pass. So it's one of the steepest roads in the country and um, is kind of the point where two continental plates come together and you get all of these beautiful mountains. Um, but I, I remember running out of food on the way up and I was ravenous and pulled over at a gas station and was looking to see what they had food wise. And the only thing that looked palatable to me were these gummies, but they weren't gummy bears or gummy worms. They were gummy vampire teeth. And so <laughs> I sat outside and was just, you know, pounding this bag of gummy vampire teeth to get enough energy to get up the rest of the mountain. Um, and these two attendants at the gas station were like, Oh, if you get tired, you can just roll back down and we'll give you a ride up to the top. Um, in our car. And I was like, oh, that was the inspiration that I needed to just get going. Because sometimes when someone tells me I can't do something, I'm like, I absolutely will. Um, so <laughs> I was cycling up this incredibly steep road and people in the cars that were passing rolled down their windows to cheer me on. And I was so excited when I got to the top, I, you know, jumped off the bike and picked a flower and put it behind my ear and did this happy dance, which is surrounded by this gorgeous landscape of mountains. and. Um, that sticks out to me as one of my favorite bike routes, I think in part because of how hard it was, but also the just the like sense of accomplishment of having done something that I wasn't sure if I could do. Um, and yeah, I, I remember also being on this really rural road in, in Eastern Thailand and uh, full of rice patties and cows and then rounding the corner to this. There's all these different spirit trees that are decorated with, um, kind of elaborate pieces of fabric and often have a shrine at the roots. And there was a whole group of people with this tall reedy bamboo instrument who were dancing around the tree. And they were like waving me over to <laughs> come and join this tree dance. And so I danced around a tree for, I think, several hours. Space and time kind of opened up in a weird way that I wasn't sure what was happening and when it was happening. But um, I don't speak Thai and these people didn't speak English, but we were communicating through body language. And then I asked um, kind of through this translated piece of paper that I had if they wanted to share a story and um, had that translated uh, a couple years later when I was back in the U.S. And um, it was a harvest ceremony to honor this spirit called Pai Fa. It was really interesting hearing people in that group reflect on the unpredictability of rainfall patterns, but also wondering if this ceremony would continue to happen in the future and this sense of kind of the long wait of time moving backwards, but also the question mark of what it would be in a climate change future for this community to um, continue this practice or not. Um, so I don't know. It, it, oftentimes the bike route for me is kind of tangled up in the people I met, the experience I had along the way. Um, but it was, it was absolutely gorgeous. And then in terms of not on the bike, I don't know, I think super fondly about this time I spent on both cargo ships and <laughs> two different types of sailboats, um, in part because it was just this huge learning experience of the oceans are massive, like massive, massive. Um, and feeling that in my body was, was a really dynamic way of, of moving through that watery space. Um, 
And I remember seeing a, a whale kind of like jump up <laughs> from nearby the sailboat. And similarly, like dolphins were surfing under the bow wave of this catamaran that I was helping navigate. Um, and that was was super fulfilling. Um, How do you get on a cargo ship anyway? Oh, yeah. There's um, this one German company called Hamburg Sud. And they take passengers. I don't know if they do now during the pandemic, but they did in the past. I'm sure they will again in the future take passengers. Um, it's more expensive than flying. Uh, I think it was about $200 a day. So that's why I went on Kickstarter and made a crowdfunding campaign for this. And then I wrote people poems and postcards from the boat, um, which worked like within less than 24 hours, I had enough money to do it, which was incredible. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, I think you have to submit a medical examination of some kind, and then you have to be a little bit flexible with the route and the timing because um, logistics are a bit more complicated. And uh, what was that? Just, where were you going from where to Between where? New Zealand and Australia. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. Uh, I didn't want to interrupt your flow there because no like worries. A no couple worries. more destinations to share, but I was just curious about the cargo ship thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Happy to go in any direction. Cool. Yeah. Any other places that, stand out just right off the top of your head or um well i, w- I was in the canadian arctic in a community called igloolik in nunavut for about a month um and this is a place that would be completely inaccessible by bike there's not roads leading right. there why were you there <laughs> why was i there when yeah, i was, yeah. when i was in tuvalu um which is a coral atoll nation in the South Pacific that's particularly vulnerable to climate change. It was very hot. And um, I cooled myself down mentally by thinking about cold places. And so I thought about how deliciously improbable it would be if I ended up north of the Arctic Circle. <laughs> um, and um, I was drawn to Iglulik in part because there is a, an indigenous um, circus performance collective that um, is a suicide prevention measure there that um, started in response to a couple of youth suicides in the town and is a way of creating opportunities for youth to learn a new skill, um, but also in some cases to travel and perform in other parts of the world and then come back home. I was really curious about what that would be like. So it, it took me a while to figure out the exact combination of a grant application that would get me there, but was... Um, yeah, fortunate to have support from uh, an early career grant from National Geographic to go up there uh, in, gosh, it would have been 2018, in uh, the summer of 2018. And what's fascinating about being north of the Arctic Circle in the summer, maybe you you and your listeners know this, but the sun kind of just circumambulates in the sky and maybe dips below the horizon for a couple hours of sunset and sunrise all at once, but then comes back up and... um, not only was I interested in spending time with the circus, but I was curious about what um, impacts of climate change were being felt in in that part of the north. And um, the Inuit community is super based around hunting, and hunting is the main source of food. Um, flying things like fruits and vegetables in is so ridiculously expensive <laughs> um, to be inaccessible for most people. But hunting is also becoming more difficult in a changing climate because um, changing temperature patterns and changing, um, you know, when, when the ice melts and freezes is changing the migration patterns of animals like seal and walrus that are central to the food culture there. Um, so it was really 
really interesting um, to, to listen to stories of folks, especially those who'd been hunting for decades about the changes that they had experienced and, you know, how many more gallons of gas it takes to get out even to um, the animals where they are now, um, whether that's the caribou or, or the walrus or the seal. Um, and, and also just how food is shared in the North. It's very much a kind of family and kin relationship centered um, community. And that's, that's how the meat gets divided. We'll be back right after this. Would you love to have an incredible cup of coffee every day? I've tried it all. I've done the pour over. I've done the French press, but I tasted an AeroPress coffee many years ago and immediately I was sold. I had to get one. AeroPress is a patented three-in-one brew technology. This combines the flavor benefits of espresso, pour-over, and French press all into one compact portable device built for travel or home. I love things you can use in both places. This device has over 55,000 five-star reviews in over 60 countries. AeroPress is the best-reviewed coffee press on the planet. I've owned one for so many years. I don't even remember how long it's been, and they are under 50 bucks, so they also make an exceptional gift, thoughtful, proven, tasty, and travel-oriented. Who wouldn't love that? Now, you get 20% off just for being a listener of this show at aeropress.com slash zero to travel. That's aeropress, A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash zero to travel. That will save you 20% on checkout. Thanks to Aeropress for supporting today's show. Hey, it's Jason here. Did you know you are invited to join the first ever Zero to Travel community trip? Yes, we're planning a trip together. We're headed to Morocco November 30th through December 9th. And you can get all the details at zerototravel.com slash trip. It's open for booking now. We have 13 spots left at the time of this recording. And you have until the end of March to book. So if you're interested in traveling with an amazing community, this community, a small group of people on an incredible journey through Morocco together with me. Sign up over there at zerototravel.com slash trip to get all the details. Thanks for listening and hope to see you there. Now let's get back to the show. What did you learn about listening? I learned that listening is really important. <laughs> that it's something that is accessible to all of us if we just make the space and time for it. Um... And I learned that listening can be a kind of form of of climate intervention in a way if um, if we're intentional about who we listen to and how and why. What else did just becoming a better listener teach you personally? Um. Well, it led me into a career in journalism, which has been super fun. <laughs> um, for me, listening is is how I feel most alive in the world, right? It's it's a way that uh, transforms the everyday into a space that is alive with stories. And and I think perhaps most importantly, I, I learned that I could approach life with an attitude that everyone has something to teach me if only I make the space and time to listen to them. Um, and it's not always possible, right? <laughs> but it was something that I tried to prioritize in this journey for as long as, as I could and in as many contexts as I could, and especially listening to people whose um, opinions and life experiences are different to my own, I found to be a really engaging way of, of opening up the world around me and making making me feel just just more alive and more more interested. 
Love that answer. What's a common misconception people have about you? Ooh. <laughs> Maybe that I'm fearless. <laughs> I think I encountered that a lot. Maybe not so much now, but when I was on the road all the time, people are like, oh, you must be afraid of nothing. It's like, no, 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 no. I'm afraid of all sorts of things. But um, I, I, I found a way of inviting my fears to the proverbial kitchen table and getting to know them and having a conversation with them. And, and that um, made them less uh, foreign to me. And then I found that if I could be in dialogue with my fears, then it was, you know, a, a, a conversation that <laughs> part of that listening to myself, in addition to listening to other people, but listening to myself in that way, just uh, made it easier to move through the world in the way I wanted to. And, um, you know, I was going to be a woman, no matter where I was in the world. And I was going to be riding my bicycle, no matter where I was. Um, and so it didn't feel necessarily riskier to do those things in other places. It was just, um, yeah, fun. <laughs> well, on the back of that, what fear would you like to overcome? Well, I think right now with, with having the book in the world, it's, it's, you know, very different than traveling, but similar in that it is a constant state of vulnerability in a way. Right. Um, and so I think what I'm hoping to do is, um, yeah, be brave enough to do another one, even if it's not possible to do a, a journey that's as epic as this <laughs> in this exact moment in the world and in my own life, um, to, yeah, have the courage to keep putting myself out there and have the courage to continue to have conversations about it and, and to be vulnerable and that I have no control over the way that this work is received, but just um, having readers in the first place or, you know, really just anyone who engages with this work is it's always very exciting as the person who is behind it to um, have released that out into the world. But it's also it's also scary. But um, I'm really glad to have done it. And um, it just feels like a huge, huge privilege, really, to be able to um, have listened to all these stories, but also to to get them out there. Well, I'd say it's quite an accomplishment considering not just writing a book because that in and of itself <laughs> is quite an accomplishment, but the, the gathering of material was a, a multi-year process, right? Yeah, yeah. A lot of conversations, a lot of putting yourself out there. And you say in the book, quote, human voices must be central to the way we discuss water and climate change. To me, that kind of is the intention behind this book, right? I mean, that's that's what you've done here. Congratulations on just doing something epic and also making a difference, being the change. Do you want to share with everybody just one more time, kind of like, you know, info about the book, where they can get it, where to find you, all that good stuff, whatever you want, go for it here. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so the book is called 1001 Voices on Climate Change, and it was published in August by Simon & Schuster. You can get it at your local independent bookstore. Um Check if they have a copy or ask for them to order one for you. Um, it's also available anywhere you get your books online. Um, and yeah, there's there's excerpts of the book that have been uh, published in the New York Times and Wired and other places, Teen Vogue. If, if you check out um, my Twitter or my website, there's uh, info on how you can read those small snippets there. Yeah, I'm, I'm Debbie Lockwood and very grateful for this conversation. Thanks for, for being here and for listening. Thank you, Debbie. It was a pleasure to have you. And uh, we'll leave all the links in the show notes as well. What's next for you? I have to ask before we let you go. 
Um, well, so my, my day job is I'm the ideas editor for a website called Rest of World, and we cover tech outside of the Western bubble. So I continue great to website. do that. Thank you. Yeah, with great yeah. joy. It's a way of uh, traveling and thinking about tech and tech business in a different way. So um, excited to continue on that journey. Outside of that, I continue to, um, you know, work on getting the word about this book out into the world. And I'm noodling around with a fiction manuscript, which is a a mess right now. And so I can't say too much about it, but it's been fun. I feel like I'm relearning how to write um, by working on it. And so I'm hopeful that that will find readers in the future. um, Although it needs a bit more uh, TLC from me before I can (laughs) get to that point (laughs) sharing it with anyone. Any traveling coming up? Um, you know, I've been traveling very occasionally um, for the book when it's possible to do so, but um, I, I'm almost like <laughs> having a hard time dreaming of future journeys. It's it's hard because if the pandemic hadn't happened, I would have had the chance to go to Antarctica to record stories for that would have been a part of this book um, through the National Science Foundation's Antarctic artists and writers program. So I would love to have the opportunity to um, spend time with scientists who are doing work on the, on the Antarctic um, continent, but um, that'll have to hold off until the future. So maybe figuring out a way to make that happen again would be great, but we'll see. I'm, uh, I'm open-minded any, any kind of journeys reporting (laughs) come up, I would be happy to take in the future. I try. I keep trying to wrap this up, but then more questions come to my head. So I have to ask you one more. Um, in terms of grants and things like that, you know, anybody out there listening that maybe wants to do something with travel and their own project, like mm-hmm. much like you've done, what are some of the best resources or you know places that people can go to find money and support for these types of initiatives? Mm, yeah, such a good question. Um, so. The, the grant that got me started was specific to Harvard undergrads. So while I wish that that was available to more people, it's just kind of that narrow subset. It was called this, the Gardner and Shaw Postgraduate Traveling Fellowship. I mean, a, a later portion of the journey, as I mentioned, in, in the Canadian Arctic was funded by National Geographic. They have these really incredible early career explorers grants. Um, not sure what the status of that program is with COVID right now, but there's um, a lot of great information about it on their website. And I think the best way... Um, if there's any kind of grant that you see is to to speak with someone who's <laughs> reach out to someone who's had that grant before and ask if they're willing to share some advice with you or in I some mean, do you just Google, you know, travel grants or something? What do you have any sort of top level advice on how to find even find these things? Honestly, it was um, people suggesting it to me, right? Um, so figuring out, it's like kind of getting into the community of people who are doing stuff like this, looking at how they're supporting it financially, and then trying to emulate that, or um, getting advice from folks who've done it before. So I found that kind of word of mouth to be more effective, um, even in figuring out about that that first grant that got me started. That was how it happened if someone suggested it to me. <laughs> um, so kind of making it known what it is you want to do, and then asking people for advice who are um, knowledgeable about it in some way I found to be really helpful, but, um, yeah, I, I wish, I wish I had more to offer than just that, but, um, no, I mean, I think that's brilliant because that's looking back on your journey. I mean, this is one of the things that we talked about, right? It's, it started piece by piece and you really have to get into something, get on a path before things open up, right? Things don't always, you can't pre-prepare 
everything, right? Like you could have been like, well, I'm going to do this as soon as I get a grant. And, but I mean, you, you were doing things in the meantime, like you, you kind of didn't let things stop you. You just kept taking steps and realizing your vision. And that always doesn't happen right away. It takes time to sometimes create a vision and then fulfill it. So I just give you a lot of credit for just staying on the path and following things wherever they took you. And seems to me that they took you some pretty incredible places doing some really important work. So thank you. Uh, yeah, we appreciate we appreciate you here around the zero to travel podcast. I appreciate you all too. I mean, yeah, it's, it's been really, really fun to chat. And there's, there's so many ways to travel that are like pretty low cost, right? So I think just finding those and starting there um, can be, can be a great way to do it. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's been a real joy to, to chat with you. Thanks for making the time. The same. Thanks, Debbie. And stay in touch. Will do. Hope you enjoyed listening in to my conversation with Debbie. What an incredible project she's done. And I'm always inspired by people who find a way to incorporate travel into a bigger mission. It just creates a different type of travel experience. You're putting something good into the world. I, I love it. It's, it's endlessly inspiring for me. I hope you enjoyed listening to her story as well. And as a reminder, we'll leave all the various links mentioned here in the show notes. And before I leave you with a quote, I do want to remind you to get in touch. I also have a link to a voicemail you can leave me online. It's really easy to do. You just click the link and leave a 90-second voicemail. You can do that. You can uh, send me an email, jason at zero to travel.com. Just say hi, because you are the reason I do this. Obviously, this is a community-powered show. Without you, there is no show. And that means I want to hear from you. I love to make this a two-way conversation. And if you have any guests you want me to bring on, I have some guest recommendations queued up. I'm doing some outreach now, booking some interviews. And I would like for you to add your suggestions into the mix there. Topics you want me to cover here on the show. Just want to share your story and say hi. Anything like that. I just love to hear from listeners. So drop me a line if you haven't. You can always sign up as well at zerototravel.com and get the free newsletter and all that good stuff. Now, let me give a quick shout out before I share this powerful quote with you. Phil from Germany said, Dear Jason, just wanted to take a minute to thank you for the great podcast. It's really inspiring and you help me manage my daily stress. It's nice to hear. He said, I haven't been listening for too long, so I have much content ahead of me. My girlfriend and I are going to fulfill our dream next year and fly to Asia with a one-way ticket. We haven't planned much yet, but have been saving for almost a year now and really hope COVID doesn't mess up the plan and we are allowed to enter, but I should probably not worry about that yet. It will be all right. Just wanted to tell you that through your podcast, you showed me that this is the right decision to travel and experience the world. Thank you. Keep up the great work and take care. Greetings from Germany, Phil. Phil, thank you. Thank you very much for the kind words, but more importantly, congratulations to you and your girlfriend fulfilling a dream, flying to Asia with a one-way ticket. No small thing to fulfill a dream. So keep your fingers crossed. As you mentioned, uh, the world is an ever-evolving place when it comes to the pandemic and things like that. But listen, you've been saving for a year. You've got the intention you're going to fulfill that dream next year or shortly thereafter. I'm confident of that. So congratulations to 
Phil, man, I always get inspired when I hear from people who are fulfilling their dreams. So thanks for making my day with that email. Now, before I let you go, let me leave you with this powerful quote. Again, as soon as I read it yesterday, I had to share it right away with my wife. I'm like, this is awesome. I've never heard this quote before. How have I not heard this quote before? And I'm going to share it with you now. It's from the great Nelson Mandela who said, may your choices reflect your hopes, not your fears. I think that's a wonderful one to ponder as we kick off the new year. Thanks for listening. Until next time, adios. Haribra, as they say in Norwegian. And we'll chat soon. Thanks again for listening. Cheers. This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality. 